that's that's kind of our perspective like lessons learned in healthcare is you really have to have that economics piece together and so even though this technology is basically identically the same between these two diseases and it's a very similar field just again how you sell the test or how you market it um, is really important welcome to the founder's couch i'm your host katherine jang we are back for season two and i couldn't be more excited to share with you all some updates we're expanding to mit a high school classmate of mine chelsea watanabe junior at mit will be co-hosting the show on the east side now before I jump into introducing my very first guest of the season today, I wanted to spend some time to talk about why we're expanding to MIT. To be quite honest, the question is more of, why not? If Stanford is the entrepreneur collegiate hub of the West, MIT is most definitely a hub of the East. The campus is sprawling with so much incredible technical talent and innovation that when Chelsea reached out to help with the show, I simply couldn't say no. And when talking to listeners of our podcast show, you guys, the one big feedback I got is that you all want to know what student entrepreneurs are doing on other campuses. So cheers to the start of season two of The Founders Couch, a show about Stanford and MIT's student founders and their intrepid journeys of starting their own thing. Today we'll be talking to Dimitri Maxim. Dimitri is a computational biology senior here at Stanford who hails from Maine. He has his own biotech company called Nephrogen that works on at-home, entirely non-invasive kidney monitoring. Most people are under the impression that you must have a PhD before starting a biotech company. But Dimitri is an example of where that need not be the case. Now, I can't wait to dive into this and learn about how Dimitri came to found Nephrogen and what it's been like to run a biotech company as an undergrad for the past four years. So let's get Dimitri on the couch. Hey, Dimitri, how's it going? Good. How's your um, weekend of week two been? Pretty good so far. Um, Saturday was not much... Not super productive, but that's always a good thing normally. I need one day off a week right. at least. So and then we won last night. Uh big win. I saw, football, yeah. So. Did you go to the game? I did, yeah. yeah. Every awesome. game I'm always there. Awesome. <laughs> You're a dedicated footballer, I assume. Yeah. Um so I wanted to start off this conversation by asking, where are you from? So that's a good question. So I'm originally from Cyprus. It's a small Medi- uh, country in the Mediterranean near Turkey and Greece. Um, I'm from the Greek side, so I grew up speaking Greek. And I moved here when I was little with my parents. And uh, we first moved to a suburb outside of Boston called Carlisle. And I went to middle school there, or I guess elementary school in the, the first year of middle school. And then I moved to Maine for high school, where I went to a ski academy. So kind of a different type of high school than a lot of people. Um, and I lived in Maine for six years, and then I moved to Stanford and then my parents now live in another different suburb outside of Boston. Mm. Um, so I would say East Coast is home, but then also Cyprus. So I'm kind of from a couple different places. Mm. Cool. I've given listeners sort of a rundown of what Nephrogen does, like sort of the one-minute spiel. Oh, not the one-minute spiel, but like a one-sentence pitch. Um, but if you could just describe it in your own words, what your company does. Yeah, definitely. So... Um, as the, I, the name kind of suggests, so we're kidney-oriented. It's a nephro for kidneys. Um, and so I founded Nephrogen really because my family's had a history of kidney disease and I was working with kidneys in the lab in high school. Um, and then kind of one of the projects that came out of the, the lab was a, a novel way to screen for protein biomarkers. Um, it started in blood, but also for other types of samples like urine and cell culture samples. And we were using this device to do lots of different things in the lab at first, but it kind of translated into a company when I came to Stanford. And our kind of lead product now is using this underlying 
detection technology uh, for acute kidney injury. So these are patients that have rapid kidney failure. You think of it like a heart attack, but in the kidney, it's a kidney attack. And so we're trying to basically detect this acute or rapid kidney failure as early as possible with our diagnostic test so that that way we can intervene and deliver these drugs that are in development currently for the treatment of these of this disease. Mm. And so we're trying to pair basically our test as a companion diagnostic with the existing drugs. I see. And so at its core, you said it's a diagnostic test. Yeah. So what is the composition of a diagnostic test? Is it like a chemical? Is it like a software? Like what exactly so is it? So our test is a, it's a combination of both. So it's a hardware a microfluidic device. Um, which basically means micro, small amounts of fluids. And so what we're doing is we're, uh, the patient or the researcher, our end user is a patient, so the patient would basically uh, pee on this dipstick that we have Mm -hmm. that would then, the small liquid from the urine would come into our microfluidic device, and then it basically runs over this flow chip that has a lot of different sensors attached to the bottom. Mm -hmm. And then there's a a readout that we then detect with a, like, diabetes-like instrument. So you have your, like, diabetes test strip, which you can think of as our microfluidic, device or microfluidic test and then you have the like portable device that's reusable that the patient keeps in their home and doesn't uh will not dispose of or in the lab you'd keep this like the in the doctor's office and this sort of technology of detecting whether or not this person has this disease was this invented like in high school or after you came to college? So the underlying project started when I was in high school because um, I started working in a lab. I, I had this idea for, I read a lot about different diagnostics projects and realized that well, there are tons of different types, ways to detect proteins out there, but it's really hard to find ones that are quantitative, rapid, and inexpensive. And so my goal was to kind of address the quantitative and rapid piece in one test. The expensive part was like a kind of not a must have, but also included in the development. And so my project was simply to just figure this question out. And there have been people that have figured it out in a, a, in a couple of different ways, but specifically in the context of this kidney disease, it hadn't been solved yet. Mm, and there mm-hmm. wasn't a test that had been developed and on the market. And the one that they had on the market wasn't sensitive enough, so the, it wasn't quantitative enough for what they wanted. Um, and so I was basically trying to solve that specific problem for this um, type of test. Mm-hmm. And I started that work in high school, and then I came to Stanford and was kind of like gave myself two quarters to figure out like what I was interested in. I realized I really did still want to work on that project. And so I continued the science at Stanford. And then I also formed a company to try and commercialize it. Mm. I want to actually jump on that. So you said that after you came to Stanford, you decided to commercialize the product. So what was the reasoning behind doing that versus just continuing um, as doing it like a side research project? Good point. A good question. Um, so I would say I definitely got swept up into like the Stanford startup culture like big time when I got here because there's like 10 different accelerator programs you can apply to. Mm-hmm. And I kind of was that freshman. I was like, oh, I'm going to sign up for everything. I got to try it all. So I did that when I first got here. And I realized that like the great part about accelerators and entrepreneurship is in a lot of ways it doesn't matter what your degree is. Um, I mean, it matters. It definitely does matter, but it's, it less matters a lot less than in research because a lot of the research labs I went to, they kind of were like – oh, well, like he has this idea, but like our projects aren't related to that. We're doing our own thing. And so they, they couldn't really appreciate like that I had a lot of experience in research already and wanted to truly do my own project. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, I realized that like as a company, you can have these advisors that do give you support in the way that a like research mentor would, but you get to like kind of have your own funding and course to to design your own experiments and really lead your own project, which I think is harder to do in research. And so that's why I decided to 
like form the company officially and then hire people and really make it a business instead of a research project because I think that was just the best way for me to work on it in the way that I wanted to work mm, on it. Makes sense. And in the first couple months, so when you were incorporating the company, did you have like a mentor to sort of talk you through like the laws of incorporation? Did you have a lawyer during that time? Yeah, so I had, um, oh, I can go on for a while about our like experience with law firms. Um, it was a lot positive, but a lot not so positive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would say we really started with lawyers a lot later than usual. I mean, we had a patent lawyer early on because I was, as a research scientist, patenting the technology before we even thought about the company. But I did have two advisors that I met kind of through an entrepreneurship program in Boston before I moved to Stanford that mm-hmm. were kind of sort of as mentors of like how to incorporate, like just basic things to be wary of, like how to do non non-disclosures. So I kind of used that knowledge to start. And then when I came to Stanford and applied to these accelerators, they had the same kind of resources available. And that's when they connected me to law firms. And I really started to, but the initial incorporation I actually did, um, without a law firm. And then I did, cause I was really trying to save costs early on. But then later on, I realized that they do deferral plans, which not every law firm will, will, <laughs> Uh, will give you. So you, you have to really like uh, t- talk around and make sure that's a good fit for you, which was a lesson that I learned kind of the hard way. Mm, um, mm-hmm. But I would say lawyers are definitely important to think about when you're incorporating. Mm. You mentioned that patenting was something that was super important um, before incorporation. Yeah. Did you guys patent the technology before? Uh, yeah. So okay. I like that was one thing where lawyers were important. So when I was developing this, um, I patented the technology right away. So right when I was developing it, like the because the, there's different ways the rules work. But I think now I think you can uh, you have up to a year after you publicly disclose your invention for the first time to patent it. And so when I first presented at my first like science competition in high school, I filed a provisional patent like the day before that to make sure it was on record. And then we ended up doing the full patent and the international application and everything like later on. But having that early filing date is really crucial mm. um, for a company because you just don't want to lose out on patentability because um, uh, that can be that can be really important in the long run. For sure. After coming to Stanford, you incorporated, and then you turned to Stardex, right? At what yeah. point did you join Stardex, and how has that experience been? Yeah, so I, I we tried a couple different accelerators. Um, we did Pair Garage, we did Stardex, we did um, Cardinal Ventures. Uh, I think those are the three main ones that I can think of. Um, and then, oh, we did Lightspeed as well for a summer, and then we did uh, the Contrary Capital summer program as well. So we did a bunch of different ones, but I would say the most like beneficial longer term one. So the light speed and contrary ones were great for the summer and the contrary one's been a great like ongoing support resource for us throughout our company, um, which we can't say enough about. But I would say with Stardex, it's been just really nice to have this kind of nonprofit perspective because like they're really like 100% there to help you. And I think that's super rare to find in like any of these accelerators because they're run by VC firms traditionally. And even if VC firms want to help you, there's always an element of kind of competing interest there. I mean, they're really trying to find the best companies and so and get the best deal. And so I think that that was one experience that we weren't super uh, excited about just is because you, you see these VC run accelerators and they're just they're just not the same as Stardex. And so I think Stardex really transformed like how I thought about companies, how I thought about fundraising, like how you measure success, how you think about hiring and just like created this like really awesome like student resource that I like took huge advantage of at Stanford. Mm. And when you were thinking about, you know, joining Stardex and all of these accelerated programs, why why actually turn to these resources? Like, did you think about just 
kind of building it on your own and not not using the help of any accelerator programs. So I think the hardest thing for me was being a solo founder is that you really need a team around you to be successful. And I think Startex provides that team, at least for me early on, like because you have these weekly check-ins with other students. And so you kind of feel like you, you're building it with someone else, even if it's really just you and your own company. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, I mean, I really joined Startex just because I wanted to exp- see what it was like. I didn't have any expectations going in. I hadn't heard much about it. But once I went through it, I realized that it was like I needed that. And so that's when we started applying to other accelerator programs because we wanted to kind of test out different ones and see what was best. And I mean, there's some financial benefits as well. Like Cardinal Ventures gives grants to student companies to like it's, it's reimbursement. So you have to spend stuff and they'll reimburse you. But there are some financial benefits. And then obviously applying to VC firms, like being part of their accelerator, sometimes they will invest in your company. And so th- there were other like financial benefits that played a role in why we kind of kept applying. But I think in general, it was like that core wanting a team and accelerators kind of put you around other students that make you feel like you have a bigger support system. Mm hmm. You talked really briefly about how StartX was beneficial during the hiring recruiting process. So I know there were a lot of ups and downs and and the process of recruiting people to such a small team is very difficult. Um, So what were some of the memorable experiences from that time? Yeah, so StartX was actually good. (laughs) We had one employee at one point who wasn't... uh, well, so as a as a student, as a kind of a part time CEO for a quarter, when we, we hired someone basically a little bit early, and then they were working at Startex where our office was, and then I was like kind of going back and forth to class, and I found out kind of through Startex that this employee wasn't really working as much as he was supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that kind of funny story, like kind of exposed a lot because they're really there to support you, and so that they th- see things that like aren't quite right. Um, that was just kind of funny to know that there's there are other people watching, which was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just say just overall hiring and recruiting, like um, it just kind of reframed how I thought. Like you really want to hire people that are like smarter than you in every way as you can early on, which is hard to do as a student, right? Because like we're still learning, we're getting uh, like our our feet wet in startups and just like life in general, really um, learning to kind of transition to 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 a to a, a long term career. And I think. Like just these little things about like how to screen resumes, how to budget your time across recruiting. Like you really want to spend like one or two days a week like fully recruiting, at least in my when we were successful at it, how we did it. And then the rest of the time you have to like obviously work on other things, but you have to have certain days that you're like dedicated to recruiting to be successful because otherwise it's just like it has to be a significant effort of the company, especially early on. It's not like everyone like puts a lot of effort into fundraising. Obviously, they put a lot into tech development, but they don't most people don't put enough into recruiting and just so having these like tips and tricks of like how to budget your time and then how to do all the phases of recruiting like you want your first rounds your second rounds your on sites um what to include at each of those steps how to screen resumes Mm. um how to like source people for resumes because you want to like do a, a blend of um i mean in our case we were hiring interns so that was more straightforward but for our full time positions it's you gotta like some people are already working at other companies that you potentially want to poach or have them transition to your company. Um, you have people that are like looking for jobs, um, either just out of PhD programs. That's another source. And then the third source is kind of like re- recommendations from other people that are either in either of those groups. So you kind of have to like source from all three of those sources. And so these kind of things that I'm talking about now are things that we learned in Startex that like made a huge difference in our first full time employee and then helped as well just kind of with the summer interns we've had um, over the years mm. or over the past two summers. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned like typically you have like a first round, second round on site. Yeah. Is that typically consistent across all types of roles? It's totally, de- it totally depends on the industry and how you want to do it. Um, but one thing I think 
the key difference in the way we do interviews is that I transitioned much more to technical interviews before culture fits. So you can tell pretty easily in a first round interview if someone's even like remotely eligible or remotely in the in the mix for someone you want to hire just because we made a couple hires where the person was had great skills on paper, but then when you actually talk to them in person, like you realize, oh, maybe the fit isn't quite as good. But then, and then culture is a whole second piece. So the goal of the first interview is really, do they have the technical skills? And so I just basically go in and ask them a bunch of like, either if they're for a CS role, like ask them a bunch of CS questions, mm. like coding interviews. And I, I haven't obviously had experience with coding interviews, so I go to my CS friends or go to people that have been in coding interviews and kind of get an idea. And those interviews have been pretty straightforward, actually, because it's pretty standard. Mm. Um, the person either kind of can problem solve or they can't. Mm -hmm. And then the second uh, type of interview that we do is a culture interview. So after they, or if it's a, if it's a biology role, then we'll go and we'll ask them questions about their research or we'll like have them pick a topic and we'll just kind of grill them on biology oriented topics. And so that's the first round. The second round we do a culture fit. So that's really just like uh, normally me or my co-founder will do the, or my like first employee slash co-founder will do the the first round, either one, only one of us. And then the second round, it will be the whole team or two or uh, we have kind of four people on our team. So I would say two people, um, two or three at least for the culture fit, just to kind of see, like um, we ask them a bunch of random engineering questions. So like how many ping pong balls can you fit in this room? Mm. Dogs Classic or cats? Classic question. Just like random questions that we just kind of think of and just see how they react and see if they're a good fit. You can tell I've I've learned to tell pretty easily from those questions whether someone's going to be because if someone just says I don't know like we're not hiring right <laughs> and we've had that happen that's funny um, oh. I don't really know I'd have to think about it like, that's not <laughs> um, so so yeah and then our third round is just kind of like we basically for the third round we know that we want to hire them but, and sometimes we don't do the third round necessarily um, if they're if they're local if they're local we'll bring them on site for the second round and then probably just be done or maybe do a third follow-up kind of see if their culture if they want to definitely work for us if they have other offers um but the third round is just for people that like we if we're flying them in from somewhere then the, the second won't be the second will be a skype interview or a phone interview and then the third one will be on site mm. so i know with like hiring it's often it needs to be a two-way street obviously right like you're yeah. like recruiting and hiring these <clears throat> people but these people also need to be interested in working for you. So how do you sort of position your company as a, a valuable place for them to work? Yeah, so I would say the biggest thing for for startup hiring is that you're selling your company just as much as they're, they want to work for you. Because I think, and I think the people that really just want to find a job are not really good fits for startups. You have to like want to be looking for a startup job um, because like it's just, it, that, that's one of the pieces of a culture fit that I, I like, I mean, especially if they're asking like detailed questions about what are your benefits, what are your salaries, like that's just not generally questions that people that are really passionate about a startup ask. Like that's not a question as a founder I'm asking, for example. And so right. at least the first three or four employees, um, and, we, and we've seen both sides. I mean, like when we're we or the key I think is just to be really transparent about it. Is like unfortunately there aren't like detailed healthcare fancy healthcare benefits at a startup company of our mm -hmm. size, right? Or like we so we're just very transparent about that, and so. I think the key is just to find someone who's aligned with that in a way. And generally, it's younger people or people that like are are married and have like a spouse or someone else who kind of supports them with some of the benefits. Because a lot of times that happens in in couples. So we we try and really just open that up, um, however we can. And then I would say 
I just in general think like we're always selling our company in interviews. Like we're uh, we definitely spend some time at the end, some time at the beginning to like evaluate the applicant. But before there's the middle is the, evaluating the applicant. But before and after, we're really like telling them about the company and seeing like if they're asking questions about our research and really show that they because we want them to vet us just as much as we want to vet them. If they're not right. asking vetting questions, then they're probably maybe not in it for the right reasons because mm. people that are joining startups, like it's inherently risky, right? If you want a stable paycheck with benefits and all these other things, you'd go work at Google or Facebook or a place that has, everyone knows has those resources available. So if you're just going into a startup without really like realizing the risk, then I think that's also not great either. Cause then you're probably, if you're not realizing the risk, you're probably not realizing the upside of like mm. what stock options can become. Mm-hmm. So. And what about like selling your company to like a person? So you said that, you know, in an interview, usually, surround vetting the interviewee with actually selling the company to them as well like what are some lessons you've learned in the whole process of selling so i think um that's a good question so i think as a ceo you you learn in a company that you're basically just a salesman but obviously i would don't look at it that way because if i was then i would never be a ceo right Um, (laughs) so i think yeah i mean you're hiring you're selling things um customers customer acquisition you're selling your product right like clinical studies for us getting uh, hospitals to come on board and listen to us, even though we're a lot younger than a lot of other uh, starting diagnostics companies. And so tips for that, I would say some, I mean, really to just be brutally honest, I think some people have the personality for it. Some people don't. I think it's definitely a skill you can train and get better at. But like, I mean, I've worked with people in the past who've kind of done different things for us that are just objectively like really good at selling whatever it is. Um, so I would say for me, the hardest part has just been kind of learning to tell the story for me. It's really about content. Like I'm really good with, like, I feel like our company is based on a lot of substance and content. And so I just really have to go in with, I can sell really good content. Other people are good at selling less content. And so kind of my strategy is really just like get all the data you can together, really push the science forward and get something that's really just impressive on its own that doesn't have to be sold particularly. And so that's kind of my way of dealing with it. But again, like there are definitely shortfalls. Like for example, if we're working on this trial now and the data aren't ready yet, I can't sell that because I don't have the data to sell. Mm -hmm. So I kind of have to like go on what we have. I show pictures of like our completed device and really just focus on the things that you know are really awesome about your company. So if you have a functioning prototype, you have awesome collaborators, you have awesome board members, whatever it is, it can just be like an awesome co-founder that like went to Stanford or like you graduated from Stanford, like just put that on there and just sell it. And then like, you sell it to enough people and someone will like appreciate those things that you're selling and go for it. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of like how I've, it's just like volume of people. And then also just focusing on the really positive parts about your company. Mm. That's very good advice for sure. Wow. Focus on the positive, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Uh, obviously be, be open about the negatives too. Like you can't just go in there and say, Oh, we're going to cure cancer. Like you have to be realistic, but I think, um, like the first page of your pitch deck, I mean, after the title slide should be all the good things about your company. You shouldn't like hide it later in the deck. It should be like impressive stuff first and then everything else kind of after that. And so that's why I don't like those decks that are like, oh, first you should have the problem solution and like the Sequoia template or the YC template where it's like so rigid. I really think you should put the best stuff first and then you can go into your template or however you want to explain it, but really wake them up at the start with the good things and then tie everything else after that. Mm. So as as a CEO of this company, you, I assume, are meeting with board members, right? Is that something that happens on a weekly basis? Uh, definitely not. So board meetings are actually, like official board meetings are quarterly. Okay. Um, our scientific advisory board meets, uh, in the summer I would say it was once a month when I was full-time, but now it's probably going to be once a quarter. 
Um, so, so yeah, definitely not because a board meeting is actually a lot of work to put together the financials. Um, like it, it takes me probably really like a week to get everything fully together. And so if I had to do that every month, I wouldn't be getting anything done. Hmm. So, um, but I would say the scientific advisory board is, is helpful because like, as we're doing experiments, like that's who we go to for advice on like experimental design. Well, not so much experimental design, but like experimental project ideas and like directions, like we have an idea of, but it's always like we need insight for people that have been doing this for a long time. So I would say those are kind of like ad hoc calls. Like whenever I have a question, I'll call a specific advisor that we have. And then I try to get everyone together like once a month. Mm, I see. Um, for a phone call or an in-person meeting. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that like obviously doing entrepreneurship has its ups and downs. You have like the moments where you close a deal and it's all great things, but you also have the challenges of, you know, hiring and realizing that maybe there could be like a larger market. So I know you mentioned that in our last conversation at Tresseter that you guys are transitioning to a larger market. So what was the reasoning behind doing that? Yeah, so the underlying technology was, like I was saying, it was like a lab-developed test, so it was specifically for these laboratory assays. Um, but it was also for, the, the goal of the lab was really organ transplant rejection. So these are patients that have an organ transplant that are at risk for rejection. And our device was screening for biomarkers in the blood of longer-term organ loss and trying to intervene with that as early as possible because that is kind of a chronic disease that if caught early you can change the immunosuppressive drugs that the patient's on and drastically improve their survival rates but the problem is, is we're not detecting that organ uh, chronic organ disease until it's way too late and then that kidney's already or organ is already rejected and so and then right now the only way to do that is with a biopsy and obviously we're not going to do biopsies every year to take a piece of the kidney out because then you're literally like damaging as well in addition so it's it's kind of a a perfect field for a non-invasive test and so that's why and because there was a lot of different proteins that we were looking at we needed a high throughput platform like the one that i was developing and so that's why that project kind of went together but the transition became or for the company at least became very clear because we realized that there's only about 20,000 patients living with organ transplants in the u.s 20 to 50,000, depending on kind of loose estimates. The tw um, and so I would say, just when we incorporated the company, you realize that you can't sell a diagnostic test for, you can't make a profit on a test that if you have, even if it's say 100,000 patients and you're selling the test for $4,000 a year, that's a $40 million market a year. I mean, that's just nothing. If you look at any other software pitch deck, like, I mean, four or 40 million, that's, a fraction of what like any pitch deck in software is like, oh, we're doing, I don't know, 80 million a year in ARR, like by year two. And you're like, okay, by year 15, we'll be doing for, and that's the total addressable market, right? So the market size just was not big enough to do, to, to use this test for transplant rejection. It just wasn't a test that would, I mean, 4,000 is the current reimbursement rate for the acute test. And that's run like, I think eight times in the first two years, and that's acute rejection. So longer-term rejection, you, you can't order the test more than every three months. So mm -hmm. even if it's four times a year, 40 million times four, it's still like maybe a $100 million business, total addressable in the U.S. And you're, and the advantage is it's a smaller disease, so you'll probably get greater share of the market. But at the same time, it's not something, it's not a billion-dollar market, and it's not VC-fundable, which is what, exactly what you would need to, I mean, you'd probably need to raise for a business like that two or $300 million. And so if your total addressable is less than that per year it's just not it doesn't make yeah any no sense. one's gonna invest yeah. in it so right. 
so that was kind of like our discovery early on that we kind of discovered through StartX and like just learning about the industry. And so then this other business that uh, we tra- kind of other uh, use case is what we call it that we transitioned to was acute, this acute kidney injury use case because there's eight billion cases of this in the U.S. per year. Um, which is like a billion, not million. So that's cases per year. And the number of patients that would need the test is probably even higher than that. That's just the confirmed cases. And then uh, on top of that, there's additional there's an additional piece um, that the insurance companies have a like so healthcare economics is a big thing for diagnostic tests because if you don't have the healthcare economics piece, then it's gonna be really hard to get people to buy it. Um, and so it has to make financial sense to order the test. And so in our case, uh, the insurance companies are invested in tests like this because it prevents hospital re- readmission. So if we're giving a kidney injury test at home, that's confirming that patients don't have kidney injury and don't have to come back into the hospital, we can discharge them earlier. So it saves days in the hospital, which is a huge expense. And then it also allows them to uh, improves their quality of life. But then also, if there does have to be a readmission, then we can readmit them and be confident in the testing that that actually has to happen is not some other adverse event. I see. So that's that's kind of our perspective, like lessons learned in healthcare is you really have to have that economics piece together. And so even though this technology is basically identically the same between these two diseases, and it's a very similar field, just, again, how you sell the test or how you market it um, is really important. And so we're focusing right now on kidney injury and chemotherapy patients mm-hmm. because that's the use case where the incidence is very, very high, is that new cases of AKI are very frequently in patients that are on chemotherapy drugs that are highly damaging to the kidneys because that's just how these drugs are. They they're, they cure cancer or they treat cancer, but they're mm-hmm. obviously a very uh, toxic to the kidneys. And so our the point of our test is to address that need for business reasons and then also just because I'm specifically interested in kidneys and I want to really impact this specific field. Mm. That's actually a really interesting point of advice is like, yeah, like the science is there, but there needs to be like a business use case there and for it to be profitable ultimately in the end, right? Yeah. Um, And it took us probably two years, um, like to be fully honest, to really, and that like idea of product market fit, that's exactly what we were struggling with. And I think every company struggles with that. And then once you get it, it's like, oh, that was obvious, but it takes like so much work to figure that out. Software, right. and then if you don't figure it out, the company fails. I mean, that's really what happens with a lot of diet, especially in diagnostics is mm. you need to have that fit. And for us, it was kind of an added piece that like, I, I wanted to focus on kidneys and I think, and I think our investors knew that too, because that's what it was formed to do. But then when we realized that the organ or kidney transplant idea wasn't going to really work from a business case, then it became the investors like, oh, why don't you open this up to anything? Like, why can't you detect any disease? And it was like, well, we could, but like this test, our expertise is still in kidneys. And so we want to address these use cases. And so that's why um, we've chosen this. But again, it's it was just a long process to get there. And I mean, we were looking at inflammation at one point and strokes and troponins and mm-hmm. heart disease and just random biomarkers that are out there and really finally decided and and you have to at some point like everyone's going to give you lots of different types of advice um, but you have to learn as a CEO or as a co-founder of a company that at the end of the day like the ball stops with you or like you have to make the final decision and so you might be wrong right and it might like take you five years or like whatever product development to figure out that you are wrong but that's just how things go like i mean the good example is like airbus and boeing right like airbus bet on like really jumbo jets like the a380 that would like take people from hub to hub Mm -hmm. and that was going to be the future of aviation and then like boeing like invested in the 787 which is like like lighter fuel efficient uh 
air, uh, aircraft that can't go quite as far as the A380 or carry as many passengers, but kind of do these more point-to-point -point, uh, stops. And that was probably a bet that the CEOs made 20 years ago. And then now, finally today, we're realizing that, like, unfortunately, the A380 and Airbus's decision was the one that was wrong. But, like, there's no way to know for that. And so you really have to just, like, do your research and spend as much time to figure out if you think you have product market fit. And that can obviously mm -hmm. change. Mm -hmm. But you have to just make the decision based on your own intuition, because really you're going to get lots of advice and you have to realize that your decision is just your decision and you use as much advice as you want or as little advice, but you have to just f at some point decide. Right. Absolutely. So that was actually the last question before the fire round. So let's get to the fire round. Are you ready? Cool. Yeah. Okay. So first off, most memorable experience at Stanford so far? I would say uh, studying abroad in Berlin. So I was in Berlin this spring. Um, I took a break from Nefergen for three months to do kind of a research internship and uh, study abroad in Berlin. And yeah, I, I think anyone listening to this, like studying abroad is like the, the what was my most important quarter at Stanford just because of, and I think there's a little bit of recency bias. I'm sure there's lots of memorable events from fresh, freshman year that I kind of left out that mm -hmm. I'm not mentioning, but I think Berlin was just such a great experience of like learning a different culture, learning a different language, learning how science is done in a different part of the world and just kind of having the like ability to just really, I think the best part about Berlin was like there were days when you can just like sit down with German people or sit down with Stanford friends and just talk about whatever you want for like six or seven hours and like just get some food, like get a coffee, get whatever and just like sit and talk. And I just like, that would never happen at Stanford. Like, I don't know anyone at Stanford that, like, on a Sunday at 2 o'clock in Treseder, just be, like, hanging out with their friends for six hours. Right. Like, that just doesn't right. happen here. Yeah. So I think that was probably my most memorable event. Awesome. Uh, second question. Favorite class at Stanford and why? Ooh, good question. Um, I would say this is a hard one. Uh, so, honestly, I don't really... Class isn't the thing I think the most about when I look back on my Stanford life, but I would say <laughs> CS 107 was the most memorable because it was in a quarter when I wasn't taking that much, so I could really like focus on it. And I felt like every assignment I did in that class, I was like changing the brain my way the way my brain was wired, and even though it was hard and like I struggled, especially with heap allocator. Like oh oh yeah, everyone struggled with that one. <laughs> <laughs> it was just the most definitely the most memorable. For sure, um, closest mentor at Stanford and how you met them. Closest mentor is my honors thesis advisor. His name's Vivek Bala. He's in the uh, division of nephrology. Um, I think I actually met Vivek through Nephrogen. I was trying to find customers and <laughs> slash mentors. And so really just customers, though. And I heard from someone that he had a big database of samples that he wanted to run Eliza's on, and he was running lots of Eliza's. And so I emailed him and said, hey, we're like making this product. And he was basically just like, oh, yeah, come on into the lab. And and so I went in, and it turned out he wasn't going to be a customer, which is kind of a bummer. But mm -hmm. then we kept in touch, and he gave me some good advice, introduced me to other people who one of them ended up becoming a customer. Okay. So that was helpful. Um, but then, yeah, and then I, I guess I was looking for a lab to do my honors thesis in. And, yeah, I just I check in. It's great because it's a really small lab, so he's able to kind of work with me all the time, like one-on-one. -on -one. He like will come in the lab and like do pipettes with me and stuff, which oh, I think wow. for, with a mentor is pretty amazing. So, And he's just a really smart guy, really great at designing experience, like exceptional at designing experience and answering questions and framing things in a way that really gets at the problem and like controls just is just so smart scientifically and like that's just been a really great mentor for me throughout Stanford. That's incredible. Favorite place to do work on campus? Probably Old Union this year. So I'm living in Mars so I 
I like to just be able to walk to places. And I think Green Library, I fall asleep in all the time, oh, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> um, I used to work in the low-key stem cell building because I had a lab there. And that's just kind of a nice, like, but, and during the day, that's fine. But at night, I like to be around other people. Otherwise, again, I fall asleep. So right. <laughs> Old Union's good for that because there's tons of other people around always. And It's always um, hustling and bustling. Yeah. And you can still find quiet places. So I just camp out there and right. get stuff done. Yeah. Favorite activity to de-stress on campus? Fountain hopping. Hey. <laughs> I would say, yeah, that's a good, I haven't done that in a little while, but I used to go, like, even after all my finals, even in the winter ones, just jump in the fountains. Oh, really? When it was freezing cold? Yeah, yeah, even that's at night. Cold. So I would say that's my favorite distressor. And then, yeah, I love just, like, exercising, too, I think is great. Like, I'm on the ski team, so we have drylands and a lot of working out. But I think even if I wasn't skiing, well, I don't know. I think either way, it's a great way for me to, like, just have consistent exercise and activity to, like, just keep my brain distracted from too much work. Hmm. And I like to do it in the afternoons, practices, so that way we can – I mean, we have morning practices a lot of the time in the winter, but which I don't like as much. But the afternoons are nice because you study all day, you have a nice break for a couple hours, and then you go back to work. Got to have that good work-life balance for sure. Yeah. One piece of advice you'd give for students on campus who might want to start something? I would say the biggest thing for this is solve problems, not build companies. So – like, you really have to, like, be passionate about a problem you want to solve and then figure out the best way to solve it. In my case, I decided on a company because I think that, like I was saying at the beginning, research was just a little too restrictive and funding-wise is more limited, especially in a place like Silicon Valley where there's a lot of VC funding and angels around. So that's why a company was the right decision for me. Um, but I think there are other questions that I want to like kind of answer that I even think about in our own company that I can't answer because the best way to answer it is as a researcher. So at some point, if I wanted to answer these questions, I'd have to go back in the lab mm-hmm. and work on that before I could even make a company. So you just like everything is case by case problem based, but really think about how to solve the problem and then and then brainstorm ways or test different ways of the best way to solve it, which mm-hmm. might be a company. Mm. Good advice for sure. Um, and very last question. So what would you say are the next steps for Nephrogen and yourself? Yeah, so for Nephrogen, I think I want to get uh, this product to a point where we can, I want to publish our current study with uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. I want to maybe add another two or three studies to the pipeline. We have one in the pipeline, but maybe have like five total. And then uh, really just get to a point where this device can be brought to a contract manufacturer and commercialized or when I say commercialized, like be sold to hospitals. Mm-hmm. And then I think at that point, I would like to step away from Nephrogen and bring in someone who's had experience selling in the healthcare industry because I think mm-hmm. that's just a totally different model of growth. So as the like chief scientist on like kind of the invention of this technology, I would like to see it all the way through to that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And then for myself, I think I want to apply to MD-PhD programs because this past summer I was – um, I did a really impactful internship in Baltimore, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. at the NIH and University of Maryland, Baltimore. And I kind of learned that I think having a Ph.D. is critical for, like, great scientific thought or can be is helpful for having developing scientific thought. But I think that if you're not – if you don't also have medical training, then you kind of lose track a little bit of, like, the patient problems and – and, and really it becomes more of a basic science interest as, as doing a PhD without the medical degree. So I think uh, after I finish kind of the work I'm doing with Nephrogen, I'd like to apply to MD-PhD programs. And and then, I mean, there's another piece I've been thinking a lot about is like, what do I do with skiing? Like I I might want to ski at a high level next year for Cyprus, um, where I'm from, but I'm just kind of considering all my options now and, and seeing which... Because which, skiing, unfortunately, you can't do your whole life. So right. I kind of a more immediate decision, but then... How nephrogen plays into that, um, 
just using this year to figure out. Hmm. Well, I'm excited to see um, where you're headed. Lots of great things. So thank yeah. you so much for thank coming you, on Catherine. the couch, Dimitri. Now, I hope you all enjoyed that episode. Thanks again, Dimitri, for coming on the couch. I'm excited to see where he goes with Nephrogen and biotech entrepreneurship. Thanks so much for tuning into this first episode of season two. If you've got any feedback, suggestions, questions, or any existential thoughts, write to us at cj98 at stanford.edu. Lastly, wherever you are listening, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Next episode, Chelsea will be talking to Miles Stapleberg from MIT. Make sure to tune in to hear all about his journey of founding NanoCap, a metallurgical company creating a new composite material with applications in jewelry, nuclear, and transportation. I'm Catherine Jang, and you've been listening to The Founder's Couch. See y'all soon.